The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. When they are asked to provide their religious affiliation, they reply, none. Religious free agents, free to be secular or spiritual. But they definitely aren't religious, and their ranks are growing. Over the last two decades, the numbers of people disaffiliating with any religious tradition has continued to rise. But what should we think of the nuns? Why do they withdraw from religious communities? What are their current beliefs, or lack thereof? What are the future projections for their growth? And is there something Christians can do in particular to stem the tide of the loss from their own communities? In this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast, I sit down with Dr. Corey Seibel to discuss the nuns. Dr. Seibel has a PhD from the University of Pretoria and an MTH from Spurgeon's College, London. Currently, he is a pastor on staff at Central Baptist Church in Edmonton and an affiliate professor at Sioux Falls Seminary in South Dakota. For the last 15 years, Dr. Seibel has focused his research on generational dynamics in the church and society. In our conversation, we focused on his conference paper titled, There Arose Another Generation, Learning from Atheists and Agnostic Nuns Who Have Left the Church. You can visit Dr. Seibel online at coreyseibel.wordpress.com. That's C-O-R-Y-S-E-I-B-E-L dot wordpress dot com. Corey, thanks for joining us. So we're going to be talking about nuns. And of course, let's get the joke out of the way. It has nothing to do with the Catholic Church or old ladies and habits, right? That's right. <laughs> so what is the nuns? What are the nuns? Uh, the nuns are uh, this group of people that, uh, have, when presented with opportunity to uh, respond to surveys and um, uh, demogra- demographic studies and things of that sort, are choosing to uh, respond to the religious affiliation question by saying none, none of the above, no religious affiliation, so none. Okay, so how many nuns are there? right now is is there a trend that the nuns are growing or s- shrinking i take it the fact that we're talking about them suggests they're becoming more significant over time would that be a correct assumption yeah uh so i i came to canada just three years ago and i think that the the storyline is playing out a little bit differently in the canadian context in the american context that i came from so i would say that uh, the the data seems to suggest that there's a similar percentage of the population in both countries today who would identify as nuns and uh, overall it would be somewhere probably in the 23 to 25 percent range it would be higher than that amongst uh, the younger postmodern generations the millennial generation depending on whose study you're looking at at what point in time is probably something more like the the 35 percent range mm-hmm. or higher um, but uh, I would say that the people who have chosen to identify as nuns in the Canadian context that that has been um, uh, the, that larger number has been more established for a greater length of time in this environment where I think part of why it's uh, it's something that's uh, in the news as much as it is or being talked about as much as it has is because in the American context over the course of about the last 
eight years, there has been a, a per pronounced dramatic increase in the number of people who are choosing to identify as nuns, again, especially amongst uh, the younger millennial generation, within a very short amount of time, that number has, has increased dramatically. So um, needless to say, it's garnered a lot of attention, uh, both within the Christian world and within um, the world of cultural analysts at large, and it's also been the source of a fair bit of anxiety for people who are prone to get ang anxious about those kinds of things. So it's a little bit surprising that currently Canada and the U.S. are comparable because I think a common assumption is that Canada is a little bit more secular. We're more halfway to Europe. We're in, in between Europe and, and the U.S. in terms of religiosity. But when it comes to the nuns, you say that now the, the numbers are comparable, but you're saying that's in part because the U.S. there's been a real leap in them just recently. Is that what I heard you saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I'd agree with that assessment that it seems as though, uh, and again, being a newcomer to Canada, I, I hold some of these perceptions a little loosely because I'm still learning my way into this environment, but it has seemed as though Canada has been in a more advanced state of post-Christendom, if you will, or a post-Christian kind of culture uh, for some time. Uh, so yeah, the, the real story, I suppose, is just how quickly that the gap between those figures in the Canadian context and the American context have closed within the matter of, of uh, uh, you know, probably half a generation, so to speak. Just makes me think of a, <coughs> excuse me, a book by Peter Berger from, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever yeah. it was, called The Heretical Imperative. Uh, so in that book, because when you mentioned post-Christendom, he talks about this idea that when you move from a society where everybody has similar shared beliefs, a similar shared framework of looking at reality, to one where everybody has different beliefs that you tend to have a decrease in commitment over time. People hold their beliefs a little more loosely when they just come to realize that other people see things fundamentally different from the way they do. It is And so when you talk about moving out of a post-Christ into a post-Christendom culture, is that some of what we're seeing here then? That people, because they're meeting people with different religious perspectives every day, one of the byproducts is people come to hold their own beliefs with less conviction over time and gradually move into perhaps agnosticism and, and nunnery? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I absolutely, I think so. And uh, just even hearing you talk about that, there are any of a number of different uh, folks who have been coming at some of these questions from different angles who come to mind who are all basically speaking to the same phenomenon that uh, we see an increase in that in that kind of thing within society from you know um, those who are writing about uh, what happened uh, with the 1960s cultural revolution and beyond as sort of the final disestablishment of uh, Christianity in, in North American society to, um, you know, uh, some of the, the, the authors who were writing about Gen Xers in the 1990s who were talking about them as these masterful uh, bricoliers who, who had a propensity for bricolage rather than having a, mm. uh, a hard and fast system that w were really good at taking bits and pieces to sort of uh, develop for themselves uh, a worldview that wait, may or may not be coherent. <laughs> and uh, to, you know, even uh, someone like George Barna talking about how he sees this revolution where this uh, emphasis upon a more individualized experience of spirituality will, 
you know, at the time he was writing, I don't know if he would still hold to this view. He was kind of predicting the ultimate demise of the church. And I think he even at one point has a quote, something like that everyone will ultimately be worshiping in their own personal church or something like that. Yeah. Hey, that, that reminds me of, of a famous uh, anecdote, I guess, from, from this book, Robert Bella's book, Habits of the Heart, where he talks about a woman named Sheila who had her own religion she called Sheilaism, uh, which is just listening to her own little voice and sort of having her own little private spirituality. Now that, I guess, is a segue into talking about the relationship between the nuns and spirituality. I think some people assume that the nuns are largely a secular group, that they're hostile to religion, that they're maybe atheistic. I think you mentioned in the paper you wrote Dan Barker, who was it? Was it Dan Barker who was yeah. talking about one uh, the, the the nuns are the second largest religious group or or non-religious yes. group in in yeah. the U.S. after Christianity. So say more about the sort of religious makeup of those who are going to check none on the census form. Sure. Yeah, and so that quote by Dan Barker, of course, he is affiliated with uh, with uh, an organization that's trying to to champion atheism within society. And so uh, the I think the quote was actually something more along the lines of non-believers are now mm, the second. Right. So he was he was yeah. drawing a direct correlation between none and non-believer. And I don't think that the the actual data really bears that out. Uh, there I would say that uh, many many nuns are people who who would consider themselves spiritual but not religious, by which it means they they value the place of spirituality within their lives, but that they don't see that uh, being benefited in any way by an affiliation with uh, any kind of formal religious institution. Uh, to some people who actually probably uh, are somewhat close to, to traditional Christianity or maybe would even uh, fall under the umbrella of traditional Christianity in terms of their actual belief and to some extent practice, uh, but who have been so um, put off by uh, their perceptions of the church or the image of the church in society as they see it and feel that that to salvage their own credibility or whatever, that uh, they feel that they need to distance themselves from from Christianity because of uh, Christianity's image within society at large. Two people who, um, of course, are influenced by other kinds of spiritualities, and then uh, a small but significant percentage of nuns who would actually be uh, agnostics or atheists as traditionally understood. Now, the, this you've talked about in the U.S. has there, you said there's been this recent explosion or growth in in the nuns and in their visibility, and that seems to map in terms of timeline closely onto the rise of new atheism following 9/11, uh, 2004 through six. In particular, you had some major bestsellers, people like Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins, and and. Uh, Chris Hitchens emerging as leaders of this new mo- movement that's very hostile to Christianity. And yet, the, uh, atheism formally seems to be a very small factor in the nuns themselves. Mm-hmm. But is it, would you say that, that the new atheism contributed to the rise of the nuns in terms of creating a general skepticism or incredulity toward traditional religious claims? Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it would certainly probably be uh, one factor among many that have, particularly amongst the, the younger generations, uh, created 
a, a sense of insecurity or un uneasiness or disillusionment with their sense of the intellectual credibility of Christianity as they have experienced it, at least in in uh, the churches by which they were formed. So the research that uh, that David Kinneman, who now is uh, the director of the Barna Research Group, he's he's uh, published a series of books that he's trying to track uh, those who have sort of uh, been put off by the faith. What are some of the the experiences or perceptions that have significantly contributed to that for them? And um, in his book, um, "You Lost Me," which is about those who the church has lost, essentially, um, the of the six factors that he identifies, three of them are are inherently intellectual in nature. They have to do with perceptions about the church's views on science and and things of that sort. So I do think that there has been uh, this kind of growing sense and new atheism is certainly one of the voices that probably has done an, an effective job of contributing to this is this sense that I can't be a person who is uh, is uh, seen as intellectually credible within society and and holding to this uh, arcane uh, religious ideology at the same time. So, yeah, I, hmm. uh, y you're right that the, the, the actual percentage of people who identify as atheists hasn't grown significantly in that time, but maybe, maybe uh, that movement has been more effective at chipping away at a sense of, of uh, Christianity's credibility um, that's had an influence on people who, who maybe haven't chosen to identify as atheists. And in my paper, I also just mentioned in passing that there, there were a few different authors that I've interacted with who suggest that, that uh, perhaps the, the reason why there, we haven't seen a more pronounced increase in the number of people who identify as atheists is because um, some people who are also reluctant to be categorized in that way as well. So when on the religious affiliation questions, uh, when you ask, um, are you atheist? The, there hasn't been a, a, a very pronounced increase in the number of people who would respond to that affirmatively. But when you ask a question like, do you believe in God or in a, some kind of divine being, the percentage of people who respond in agreement with that is much higher. And so th there's been the suggestion that maybe to some extent, new atheism suffers from some, some of the same kind of uh, of public perception issues that Christianity does, that um, whether or not a young person identifies with what they stand for, they choose not to be categorized in that way. Yeah, I, I remember reading that and I thought that was ironic in, yeah. in the sense that the new atheists purportedly wanted to remove stigma and to say, come out of the closet and let's shine a light on, on this group. We're not going to be marginalized anymore. Unfortunately, by doing that, now they've given the term atheist even more of a negative stigma for a large segment of the population than it had before. So yeah. it sort of has a negative blowback. Yeah. And that's kind of ironic. So what are some, uh, how about a consumerism? Um, consumerism, many people lament the impact of consumerism on the church. Do you think this, the mentality of, of approaching the church as a consumer leads to the rise of nuns because traditional religious commitment seems to be somewhat inimical to this idea of consumerism where uh, I'm defined as someone who consumes things and so I'll only stick around as long as I'm getting my needs met. Yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, I think that uh, if, to the, to the extent that some forms of 
nunnery uh, uh, is uh, an expression of kind of a, a, a liberated do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself, do uh, um, have-it-your-own-way kind of approach to spirituality, then yeah, I think to some extent it could be interpreted as sort of a, um, a hyper-expression of, of that, you know, that, or, or in fact, I would, I think that in that book that Barna wrote about a decade ago that I was referencing a few mo moments ago, he basically says it's the logical outcome of that, that he's, he's looking into the future and predicting there will come a day when this will be sort of the average religious religious experience because from his vantage point it was the ultimate logical outcome of a more individualized consumer oriented approach to spirituality so hmm. whether he's right about that or not i mean he's certainly saying that that uh, there's a relationship between the two i suspect another issue which actually you do touch on is the problem of doubt mm -hmm. questioning and the success or lack of success of the church to address doubts and questioning that people have as it arises, there comes a critical point where if people aren't addressing your concerns, you're just going to say, you know, I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm not getting the answers here. Can you say more about the, I, the problem of doubt, questions, and how successful or not the church is at addressing doubt? Yeah, and um, and maybe just to kind of begin, I, I want just to take a step back. Like, I want to be careful not to be just a, uh, another voice that rails against consumerism and its impact upon the church, because mm. even consumerism is a, a concept that has the potential to be redeemed, in that it uh, does uh, it does place some emphasis on the the place of choice in our lives, and so we actually can choose uh, for the sake of God's kingdom. And so uh, there is a relationship between that, I think, and uh, the conversation about about doubt, uh, because uh, people are are wrestling with the choices that they're making in their lives, and and so uh, some people are uh, have experienced uh, the the research shows that some people have become disillusioned with the church because they've in, experienced it as a place in which they aren't able to to wrestle with the the honest doubts that they have with integrity. And um, so, uh, you know, the James Fowler's work on faith development, he, he, he kind of develops this framework of, of faith development as something that we experience in stages that from childhood up to adulthood. And he would say that, that um, we, we all have to come to a point where we experience this kind of crisis where we really have to wrestle with our faith and own it uh, as our own. And he would say that that's kind of the fourth stage in the, the process of faith development. The third stage, however, is more of a conventional kind of faith where we belong. And uh, not to say that we just are like lemmings kind of going along with the pack, but it's more of a, you know, more of a be belonging oriented and less of a critical reflective do I really own this as my own? And um, one professor uh, from a Baptist seminary, a, ba a Baptist theological seminary in Richmond, uh, uh, wrote a book a number of years ago in which he took this concept and sort of uh, extended it out to congregational life and posited that the average church is actually, its life is pitched at a stage three level for more of a conventional kind of faith which means that the person who's come to a point where they're really wrestling and uh, asking the tough questions of their own faith identity and things of that sort 
in some church context might not actually experience it as a, uh, a very hospitable environment in which mm. to do that wrestling because the church isn't outfitted well uh, to create space for people to deal honestly, to, to voice their questions, to, to have their questions taken seriously. Um, and for other people to to affirm the role of of honest struggle uh, rather than perhaps being threatened by it and and reacting against it. We have uh, let's say a 17, 18 year old who grew up in the church. What is the likelihood that they're going to end up a nun? Statistically. Statistically, well, that's. Uh, um, I it's think like, like, who do you see millennials? Was a third, thirty-five percent. So, yeah, do you so say it's about one third? Um, yeah, and and of course, some of those people uh, were raised in homes where their parents didn't have uh, religious affiliation. So, some of the research that's been done shows that uh, the nun phenomenon is in uh, probably six out of ten of uh, of young people who today identify as nuns were raised in homes that that had non-affiliation or that were non-believing homes. So that tells you that about four out of ten of uh, of uh, young adults who identify as nuns today were people who grew up in an environment that had some kind of religious affiliation, but that um, where they've they've chosen to walk away from from the faith at least at this point in the course of their lives what is the so what one thing i've heard in in some research is that people often walk away from the church in their late teens early 20s and they come back when they begin to get married and have children Mm -hmm. and they're building a family they realize they need more structure and the sort of nebulous framework of the nun is not adequate to build a family. Is, is that evi- is, is that idea borne out by the evidence that people tend to return, do you think? I think to some extent uh, it remains to be seen. I mean, we'll see. Uh, I think one of the, the one of the challenges in that notion is that I think it betrays the extent to which uh, a sociology of religion and our categories for sociology of religion in recent decades has been so deeply influenced by a lot of the formative work that was done among the boomer generation which was uh, known as a generation of seekers and they were on a, a journey of self-discovery and so within the boomer generation there was a, a a sizable movement of people away from the church for uh, a period of at least a few years, but that uh, there was also a movement back to the church that generally came during that time when boomers were beginning to settle down and establish families, and they they began to kind of awaken to a longing for something that they had actually experienced in the church. Although uh, probably two-thirds of, of boomers in their return to the church didn't go to the church of their childhood. They maybe were raised Presbyterian or something like that and and went to Calvary Chapel or a Willow Creek style church or something like that. So, but uh, all of the vast amount that's been written about boomer uh, spirituality and religiosity has kind of shaped our imagination about these things. I think that, that while it sort of remains to be seen to some extent that amongst the younger generations that we do see signals that um, we maybe have kind of entered a new chapter in things because of the, the further disestablishment of institutional religion. So um, I think that uh, the evidence would suggest to me that the, the idea that, oh, we, 
that some have suggested that well, we all can, we can kind of just uh, rest easy and kind of uh, uh, let time pass because they'll be back. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, that uh, the the signals that we see would suggest that 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 there's a givenness to that that that's something that's integral to the life course or to the human experience because I think that that seems less obvious in what we see happening amongst uh, the the Xer and millennial kind of crowd than was was the case amongst boomers. Hmm. It's a little bit depressing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, something I wanted to to ask you is, is about rates in Europe. Do you know anything about where Europe is at as regards the nuns? When I was living in, well, shortly after I, I moved back from London, it was actually, I think, 2005. There was this one survey I remember where it wasn't about nuns in particular, but it was something like one third of, of the people surveyed had some belief in in some god, but one third were agnostic, and about one third were atheist. Mm. That's very roughly what I remember. Mm-hmm. And this that was about 11 years ago, which was kind of shocking to me. I mean, thinking about about England as you know the Church of England and so on, a Christian country. So it just sh- shows how we've we've changed. And of course, Scandinavia is famously secular now. So as generally, is it fair to say that at least in Western Europe, the percentage of nuns is, is even higher than in North America? Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, I would, uh, I think it would be fair to say that in most uh, Western uh, European countries that um, in addition to where the actual rate of affiliation that the, the clearly the the place of of the church within society is definitely quite different than it is here in North America as well. So yes, absolutely. Now there's a big skepticism in the nuns, among the nuns as you've said, of institution. Uh, so I, one might think that this would leave the more institutionalized forms of Christianity such as Catholicism more vulnerable than a very informal, non-denominational house church, for example. Is that is that fair to say that the non-denominational house church might weather the skepticism of the nun toward institution and dogma more successfully than the more institutionalized and quote-unquote rigid Catholic church? Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I imagine that both scenarios probably have, uh, have their uh, strengths and weaknesses in that regard. Um, I just uh, am working on reviewing a book uh, called uh, The Nuns Are All Right that was written by a Catholic author who herself went on this journey of kind of uh, going through a, a season of her life where she would have identified as, as spiritual but not religious, um, but then found her way back into being a practicing Catholic and a, a Berkeley professor of literature at the same time, which I think has been kind of interesting mm. for her. But she would suggest that she thinks she sees enough enough space Theologically, within um, the world of Roman Catholicism, for um, a broad range of of people to find a sense of home there, um, and she's not she's not uh, saying that from a kind of a propaganda kind of place, but as a result of her own journey and the journeys of people that she has has um, spent a lot of time interviewing and things of that sort. So, um, so I, I, yeah, I, uh, the non-denominational house church kind of scenario, I mean, I think a challenge that often is encountered there is that, uh, oftentimes those churches, uh, 
are are the and I hope I'm not speaking in an overly stereotypical or reductionistic kind of way in saying this are the churches where sometimes there's a le- less of a readiness to uh, create space for the kind of difficult questions that that people bring because the organizing principles tend to be more experiential or pietistic or mm-hmm. uh, you know so I'll have to ponder that question further. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it may or may not be an advantage to have a more or less institutional church. That's <laughs> uh, that that is a good segue into the more general question of how can churches deal with this trend toward disengagement from institutionalized religion and toward non identity. Uh, and I guess I could ask that in many ways. I, I have a 14-year-old myself, so one way I'm thinking about that is people being raised within the church, kids. How do you disciple kids so that once they go to university, they're not just throwing off the chains of dogma? And also more broadly in the church, how can churches effectively respond to the challenge of the nuns? Yeah. Well, I wish that I had a, a simple formula along the lines of a magic bean or silver bullet or seven easy steps. Um, but I think there are a few things that we can learn from some of the research that's been done. Um, I think that uh, in my paper that you've referenced a couple times, I, I touch on the work of, of John Westerhoff, who was a legendary uh, scholar on faith development and religious education. And in the, the approach to to uh, religious faith development or uh, religious social socialization that he developed, he would suggest that through the adolescent years that the two kind of key developmental themes that uh, contribute to a person's faith development have to do with uh, what he calls affiliative faith, so how we are socialized into an experience of a religious community through participation, as well as... Um, uh, I, I can't remember what he calls it now, basically kind of uh, questioning faith. So as we begin to to ask some uh, questions about how the, the, f- the faith that we've been brought up in actually um, meets the reality of our lives and some of the questions that that poses. So I think those are really significant that uh, uh, how we attend to uh, adolescents' experience of belonging in the church and uh, how we journey with them in in wrestling honestly with uh, the struggles that they're having. And those are two fronts on which uh, a lot of the people who have been alienated from the church, they've experienced things that were painful in one or the other or both of those categories where they've been disillusioned by by painful things that they've experienced in the church, uh, which really raises questions about how we foster life together as a community of, of integrity and grace and um, how we um, how we provide opportunity for young people to to uh, wrestle with with uh, their faith I know that uh, one study that uh, I uh, interacted with a little bit told some stories about you know young people who were put off by these experiences of youth ministry that assumed that every adolescent just always wants to have fun all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and that when in reality there are some some thoughtful young people who actually want to have an opportunity to to wrestle with their faith. So I feel like I'm kind of blabbing a little bit right now, but to, to maybe pull it back a little bit, a couple of the, the key things that have... Um, have come to light through the research that Kara Powell and her associates have done at uh, the Fuller Youth Institute in California at Fuller Seminary. They have, over the course of a number of years, 
they have been um, doing some uh, study in a project they call their Sticky Faith Project. And the overarching question that they've been asking is what what can we learn about the uh, the factors, the positive factors that contribute to, to young people developing faith that sticks in that transition from high school into their university years and beyond uh, over against those for whom it doesn't stick. And again, they, they didn't necessarily find any sil silver bullets either, but they did find some strong correlations and they found that that uh, meaningful relationships with adults um, is a, is a there was the strongest positive correlation that they had. So having caring adults who are walking alongside young people who know them and are investing in their spiritual journey can provide the context for that affiliative mm -hmm. development that Westerhoff was talking about. Including parents? Yeah, including parents. But uh, but there's um, the Fuller Youth Institute, they're, they're strong advocates for intergenerational relationships in the church beyond the mm -hmm. parents that actually yeah. can, can be of help to the parents at the times when parents are feeling a little like they've kind of reached their end, you know? Okay, that's, that's very helpful. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, you said that some kids want to go deeper, and I think um, well referenced in your in your paper was was this term moralistic therapeutic deism or something like that from Christian Smith. So this idea that kids who were raised in the church when they were surveyed at the end of their high school and asked on their views of Christianity, Christian doctrine, the kind of theological picture they produced was closer to a therapeutic moral deism. So there's a God, a God out there somewhere who loves us and wants us to do well, and uh, he's given us certain principles to live by so that we can flourish, rather than the richer theological categories of distinctively Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk then about moralistic therapeutic deism, people who grew up in the church and yet at the end of their Christian experience, uh, their doctrinal understanding was not within the rich, distinctively Christian theological categories such as atonement, incarnation, trinity, but rather was this vague understanding of a benevolent deity who wants to bless us mm -hmm. uh, so we can have our best life now or something like that. So how should, do you think, um, churches, pastors, youth pastors can begin to be a little bit more intentional about developing theological doctrinal understanding, for example, a good old-fashioned catechesis, you know, yeah. nailing down some doctrinal framework. So if you do reject this later, at least you know what it is you're rejecting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely, that's actually absolutely important. Um, the research is, a, is even a little bit more damning, if you will, than, than to suggest that there's something that youth in many churches have failed to get. Some of the research that's been, that Christian Smith has done would suggest that they, they actually really got it, that the version of Christianity that they saw being modeled for them by their parents is precisely the version that they've come away with. So they, that it would suggest that to some extent this moralistic therapeutic deism is is a bit of an intergenerational phenomenon, mm -hmm. which um, really... So it's not like their parents are sophisticated Trinitarians right, who understand yes. the atonement <laughs> and incarnation. Right, yeah. I mean, so that should give us uh, a pause to stop and really assess what's going mm -hmm. on in our churches. So yeah, I do think that um, uh, the 
some of the people who've really influenced my thinking about this are like Kenda Creasy Dean, who's a youth ministry professor at Princeton Seminary. I think she's incredible. And uh, uh, Charles Foster, who is a recently retired religious education professor from um, Candler School of Theology at Emory, have done a really beautiful job of talking about what is it, what does it look like for us to take uh, more of a a communal approach to to raising up young people in the faith. And I think they would definitely say there that there is a key component of that that would be more of a catechetical kind of thing in nature, but that alongside that there's a greater need for us as communities to attend to the relational dynamics, but also uh, I think the thing that's rich with a lot of potential that goes sort of untapped or where churches have a lack of imagination about this is that they would suggest that engaging young people in practices that form us in the Christian faith. What are what are the the practices that are are significant to our understanding of what it actually means to live the faith? That that is an area that's really key um, to helping uh, young people to become grounded in the faith in a lasting kind of way. So it, not just the, the the knowledge aspect of it, but the actual e- experience of engaging in practices that are informed by mm. uh, our theology, by our understanding of the Christian faith. So uh, whether they be just some of our, our core worship practices or the way that we practice community together to the way that we practice the hospitality and the giving and receiving of of forgiveness, you know, what a, what it, what would it look like for us as communities of faith to say to young people, come on, let's go and, and live this life together and for you to experience these, these profound, radical practices of the Christian faith along with us. Hmm. Uh, Kenda Creasy Dean would suggest that part of the problem is a, p- a problem of passion, that the churches are places where the, the passion that is kind of uh, native to adolescence just hmm. isn't provided channels in, within which to be expressed. And um, so those passions end up getting invested elsewhere. And so she would say that one of the ways in which we respond to that is by becoming uh, communities of practice in which adolescents can can share in life together with the adults. Yeah, I want to come back then and maybe end on uh, this question of passion. Uh, one thing that, uh, that I've seen among many people who are skeptical with the church, frustrated by the church, is that they have a passion. And the passion is a deeply moral picture of the world that they think the church just doesn't get. So for example, concerns about climate change and the moral dimensions of climate change, material consumption, eating of meat and industrial agriculture and Mm -hmm. the war machine, the industrial military complex and use of military drones in the Middle East. I mean, all these issues and the large segment of the church is talking about transgender washrooms. It's not that those that isn't a discussion that needs to happen as well, but many of these younger people, millennials that I hear having these deep passions, they're saying, where are the concern for these issues? There could be a billion climate refugees in a century with the current trajectories of climate change, and we're, we're debating all, spending all our time in the church on, on transgender washrooms. So what do you think about having a broader moral vision for the church, which can get the passion so that young people don't feel they have to leave the church in order to live out their moral vision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, there again that uh, the the research that David Kinneman has done that I was referencing earlier, uh, those kinds of themes come up repeatedly as well. This sense of uh, of disillusionment with the uh, 
kind of the seeming irrelevance of a lot of the things that tends to preoccupy the energies of the church. So yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I'm hopeful that there there are uh, Christian leaders today who are uh, wrestling with those questions and who are seeking to to respond in a in a discerning and robust and faith-informed kind of way to those sorts of things. Um, those voices are either go either unheard or kind of marginalized in some quarters of the the kingdom. But my hope would be that with time that we can we can find space within the life of the church to hear from those voices in a way that allows us to see that um, the prophetic voice of Scripture, the the reach of God's kingdom, is far reach is far far greater than we have uh, allowed it to be in our own imagination in the past, mm-hmm. and that that can provide a context that is welcoming and hospitable and stimulating for people who see the urgent issues that are at work in the world and who want to play a proactive role in making a difference in this world. Okay, we'll, we'll end with this. Uh, you've got a good grasp of this literature. I don't. So I'd just like to get your opinion your best guess, play the futurist, where do you see things going in 10 or 20 years based on current trajectories? Do you think that the nuns are going to continue to grow in North America and in the younger population especially? Yeah, I would I would imagine so. And um, boy, I hope that I'm not railroading this conversation by saying this as, a, as an American, uh, that I feel like the... Um, in the American arena that we're at a th- at this uh, kind of threshold moment with what's happening with the current election cycle and uh, to the extent that one of the things that some young people are reacting against is uh, the the kind of uh, intimate relationship that has been cultivated between um, the religious right and the Republican Party over the course of the last 40 odd years that uh, that is the, the just kind of the, the almost at times uncritical marriage of those two things is one of the things that some young people are are certainly reacting against, and uh, I am yeah I'm I'm a, a concerned by where things are at, and I think that um, what happens in this election cycle is going to be very telling in projecting uh, the future of the Christian movement in the American context certainly, and I think. Um, could actually be a, a real threshold moment in terms of uh, whether I don't want to overstate this in dramatic terms, mm-hmm. but uh, whether the the evangelical church in the American context is able to survive the political process with any credibility intact. <laughs> well, that is dramatic, <laughs> <laughs> but but I I, I do think that um, when what you've what we've seen has really, in terms of evangelicals, some enthusiastically, some begrudgingly coming to support uh, the presumptive nominee as as we record this conversation for the GOP, uh, Donald Trump, someone who by no stretch of the imagination is a Christian. Hmm. I mean, nominally, he's, he's said, and I think in a very cynical way, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, but beyond that, you, know, you just have to look at the things he says, the things he does, how he lives his life, that really calls into disrepute a lot of Christians. So, and and it's just I think going to heighten the skepticism. And so, and it's it's not just evangelicalism. The GOP. There's I know there's a lot of concern 
from leaders within the GOP, people like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey yeah. Graham, uh, and Paul Ryan, that this is going to discredit their party, not just for Christians, I mean, not just for millennials sure. or, or the nuns, but, but for a vast growing population of non-Caucasians yeah. in the U.S. So I, I, I think that you're right, that the marriage there has not served the church well, and this is probably since the formation of the moral majority in what 1980 or whenever it was this is probably the biggest challenge yeah. to that uneasy union that we've seen yeah. but you know so, something you just said also touches on the the one kind of um counterbalancing narrative that we see playing out which is that to the extent that that there is this this growing phenomenon of the nuns that uh you know there there are hopes that and we've seen this happen at other times in church history when the church was in decline in some places and it was actually amongst uh, new peoples that there was an infusion mm-hmm. of, uh, of freshness and vitality. Uh, and so uh, certainly uh, to the extent that there there is growth and vitality, one of the places where we can see it, and even amongst the younger generations, is within uh, kind of immigrant churches in the States, certainly uh, you'll see it in some of the um, the young, flourishing Hispanic churches and uh, African churches and things of that sort. So um, my hope is that with time, we, we all have an opportunity to receive the benefit from their presence among us as well. So let it be. Corey, yes. thanks for joining us. Yeah, great, great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me to come and share this conversation with you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.